Today is December 31st, 2017. Wow. We've had an incredible series this month. It's been one of my favorite uh, topics that we've covered. The 12th round series. It wrapped up on Wednesday night with Pastor Eric and his son Judah. If you were here, you know what an incredible message that was. Talked about the right hand of God. Man, some of the things that were presented were almost too much to take in. I encourage you, if you were here, you need to go back and listen to it again. Because it was just that good. And surely, if you weren't here on this last Wednesday night, you need to make the time. Y'all know you're not going to work tomorrow anyway, so just make time. I'm just, let's just be real about this, right? You got, just make the time. I don't have time. Sure you have time. We have time to do anything that we want to do. It's just what we prioritize. So I want you to and encourage you to go back. Today, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 14? We're going to continue with this idea of God's ultimate sovereignty. The title of today's message is The Final Round. Everybody say The Final Round. The Final Round. The Ultimate Sovereignty of God. So as we turn to Mark chapter 14, we're going to start off in verse 61. Say there when you are there. 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 We're getting there. We're getting there. We've been trying to magnify the idea of the sovereignty of the Lord throughout this month. We've been trying to magnify it. We've been talking about a lot of things, how we're going to clinch with things, how we're going to turn and how we're going to mount an offensive against the enemy. That's exactly what we've gone through each and every service. And today we're going to understand the idea of the ultimate sovereignty of God. In Mark chapter 14 in verse 61, let's begin reading together. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. That's a skill that I haven't always learned in my life. (laughs) Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? So this is a very intense scene in Jesus' life. They've been talking to him, accusing him. He's remained silent. The high priest says, okay, so let me just ask you this this question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Are you the blessed one? Look at Jesus' response in Mark 14, 62. He said, I am. He said, I am. If you understand where that comes from, he's, this is recorded in Greek, but we understand that this concept of what is he saying, the, guy, the, the high priest asked him, yeah, are you really the one? And his response, he's been silent. You know, sometimes we can accentuate things by just getting louder and louder, right? <coughs> sometimes you can also accentuate something by the silence on either end. Jesus is accentuating his claim of deity right here. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus didn't just agree with him. Are you the Messiah? Yes, I am the Christ. He also took it even further. And we know that the high priest understood that he was making a claim of divinity here. You know why? The next verses, as it goes on, talk about the high priest ripping his clothing and saying, we don't need to have any more of this trial because you've heard the blasphemy. You heard it, didn't you? It's interesting that so many people want to say that Jesus never claimed to be God in the Newer Testament. He claimed it many, many times, and this is one of the times that he did. It was so clear that the high priest charged him with blasphemy in the moment. But what do we have going on here? We have Jesus the Christ saying, I am, in fact, the one. And you will see the Son of Man 
sitting at the right hand. Everybody say right hand. He's sitting in a place of honor. He's sitting at a place of power. He's sitting at a place of prestige of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The the Jesus Christ that we serve, the Messiah that we serve is all powerful. And he is, in fact, I am. This is where we're starting today as we continue to think and understand this idea of ultimate sovereignty. With polite uh, Orthodox Jews who will not say but instead say Baruch who it must have been an offensive thing for Jesus to say I am but when he ascended to the right hand of God I would say he earned that right look at how the book of Revelation presents him in the first chapter and beginning in the fifth verse say there when you were there there the fifth verse picks up with And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples. Somebody say, all the peoples. All the peoples. Of the earth will mourn because of him. Look how it's capped off. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. It's important to recognize when we talk about the ultimate sovereignty of God that the very right hand of God is the Almighty. He was in the past. He is now. He will be in the future. And the promises that he has made are sure. The Bible presents the ultimate sovereignty of God in that a war takes place, but we already know who the victor is. Amen. In the New Testament, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Say, there when you are there. There you go. Ephesians 1 verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for who? Us. Come on, for who? Us. Who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Now here's the important part, guys. Next verse, 21. Far above how much rule? One more time. How much rule? All. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Let's continue this further. And God placed how many things? All. All things under his feet and appointed him to be head over all. Everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The display of God's ultimate sovereignty is that he raised his son from the dead and that seated him, God seated him far above all rule, all authority. 
I don't know about you, but my heart is that the eyes of, of my heart would be open to yeah. see this un, incomparable great power that is for us who believe. Because when we have that surety of God's, not just sovereignty, you know, there are a lot of things in this world that can just be sovereign if you leave them alone. My car can be sovereign as long as it's parked in the parking lot. But then it loses its sovereignty once I get in and begin to drive it. God is ultimately sovereign. Therefore, he has the ability to, to be far above all these powers and rules and authorities. And that should give you and I comfort and that we rest in that resurrection power. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And what we've been wrestling with all month is this. Is that while God is ultimately sovereign, there is a tension sometime in our everyday life. Sometimes where we are, we know that He will eventually. That He has all power. That He will cause all things to work out according to His plan. But then we're in the middle of today. Anybody waiting on a promise to be fulfilled? Anybody ever been sick in your body? Anybody, anybody know people that are not saved in your family or in your workplace? Yeah. <laughs> I thought the same thing. I want to make sure you're paying attention. <laughs> the tension that is there is, is we have to ask these questions. This is what we've been wrestling with all week, uh, all month rather. And this idea is actually going to help us to glorify the ultimate sovereignty of God. But the questions we've been asking have been things like, what happens when God's people are unfaithful? What, what happens when the enemy displays more passion and more commitment than we, the people of God, do? <laughs> what happens when evil becomes a reality in our world? Wow. These are the things that we have been wrestling with. There's a tension that is there. Everybody say tension. 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 Anybody just love tension? Some of you do. Some of you should have raised your hand because you know you like tension. For most people, most people don't like tension. As a matter of fact, we'll, we'll leave sometimes our own convictions because we don't like the, like the tension that's there. I see your hand. I see your hand. <laughs> yeah. What we're trying to do is encourage you with the Word of God so that this tension does not cause you to run away from the right godly convictions that are supposed to be there. As our own Justin, to knock you upside the head, oh, Treester yeah. taught us. Come on now. In Revelation 13, that there's real autonomy and real power that was given to the enemy. And we have to wrestle with this fact. We are, in fact, in a spiritual war. Yeah. And that is what we've been grasping a hold of this month. Turn with me to Genesis 15, speaking of the Tanakh. Genesis 15. Say there when you are there. 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 Once you get to Genesis 15, let's look at verse 12. Larissa's having trouble turning the pages in her Bible because she has on so many layers of clothes. <laughs> Somebody help that girl turn a page. <laughs> in Genesis fifteen twelve, it says this. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, No, for certain. Can we just stop on that phrase just for a second? How many things can you know for certain in this world? How many things did you think you had a good understanding and then something happened and the revelation, you were like, wow, I didn't know that nearly as well as I thought I did. Yeah, that should happen. Everybody 30 and over should say, yeah, everything I thought in my 20s, 
I thought I had this. If you're in your 40s, you really realize, as the older you go, you're like, yeah, there's some things that I thought were for certain. And I realize that there's very few things like that. As we examine this verse in the Hebrew, I thought some of my Louisiana friends would appreciate it. It says, you're going to know for true. That's what it says in Hebrew. Not so much. What does it mean to be certain? When God says something, it's trustworthy. He's not capricious. He doesn't change his mind. He's not yes one day, no the next day. He wanted Abraham to know that what he was saying could be counted on. And watch how the verse carries out. This is also important why your church and your pastors and your leaders think that it's very important. If you say that something is from the Lord, one, that it actually be from the Lord, and two, that you carry it out until the end. Do you know why? Because you, if you are right and then it was from the Lord, we want people to know for certain that the word of the Lord can be trusted. Yeah. And you are his emissary. You're his ambassador. You are one of his children, supposedly reflecting his very character. This is an important thing that we're covering here. It goes by very quickly if you just read over it, but if you allow it to sink in, this directs our every step. This directs our every action. Know for certain. Listen to what he's supposed to know for certain. That your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Wow. Well, that's exciting, right? Everybody wants that kind of prophecy over you. You and your descendants, they're going to be mistreated, enslaved for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Wow, are you thinking back to our Exodus studies now? Are you reminded of how many details that it took for this, in fact, to come forth? You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Everybody say, good old age. Good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay, can we talk just for a second? So we've got Abram before he becomes Abraham. He doesn't yet have a son. And he's saying that his descendants, who will be as numerous as a nation, will be enslaved and mistreated. So we have Abram and his family line. We have the people of God. We have the nation that they will be enslaved and mistreated by. Egypt. And he ends this passage saying, yeah, by the way, there's another factor that's at work here, and it's the Amorites. And they have been sinning, but they haven't yet filled up the tank of the wrath that I'm going to pour out upon them. And God has all of these things working. He's going to say for certain what will in fact happen. And He does this about 500 years before it takes place. Pastor, that's great. Um, how many things has He told you? What is the Lord speaking to you in your home? I can assure you that if, if, if it takes more than five months, you can be certain. If it takes you five years for you to see that fulfillment, you can be certain about what the Lord speaks to you. Amen. If it takes 50 years, if it takes your great, 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 great grandkids to succeed and fulfill it to the completion, you can be certain that it will in fact take place exactly as the Lord has said. Man, what a powerful thought for us today. How certain are you? Well, we're thinking of the certainty of God. Let's take on some complicated subjects for just a minute. Because can I tell you, 
Everybody has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. <laughs> it feels great to know the promise of God. Your grandma may have quilted it for you on a pillow. But somehow or another, when you're in your next nasty argument with your spouse, that pillow can become a weapon, not a uh, comfort. <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> hey, y'all, my, my girl turned 43 yesterday. Talk about the promises of God are certain. Amen. He blessed me. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. You hear me, single men? Yeah. You don't be all proud of catting around single. It doesn't work that way. The real blessings are when God gives you a woman of God. Amen. You want to see a good example of that? The, the elders and pastors, our wives, are good examples of what you should be looking for. Amen. Go to Numbers, the first chapter, verse 46. The last sermon of the year, I'm allowed to throw in some spouse yes, praise, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think Ginger said you can do that on any service you want, I think. It's one of the ways that we're a multicultural church is her ethnicity changes. The more I praise her, she becomes every color that there is in the rainbow. <laughs> you got to love the insight you can grab from this verse, right? The total number was 603,550. Thank you very much. Now you can go home, right? I mean, if every letter is inspired in the original text, what are we supposed to gather from this? Uh, I could let silence sit on you and wait for someone to get a spiritual interpretation, right? Let's take Numbers 2651 for another astounding number. Numbers 2651. The total number of men of Israel was 601,730. We're wrestling with something here. If you haven't put it together yet, these two numbers are countings or a census of Israel 38 years apart. When Israel came out of Egypt, they counted the fighting men. Those who were 20 years old or older were 603,550. Do you know why that number is important? God had said in Abraham's time that they would go into the promised land and displace those who were there. They would take the promised land. And there were 603,550 men who got to the edge of the promised land and all but two of them would not go in. Now what does it mean when God has arranged the Amorites arranged the Egyptians and built a nation named Israel, all of whom he is manipulating to one end, to inhabit a land that he calls his. And of 603,550 people, all but two are unwilling to do what God says. Has God's word failed? Well, the people who had God's word failed. That's a really difficult thing to wrestle with. Sometimes when evil happens and we look and we blame it on God, it's to avoid blaming ourselves. We look at something happening on the continent of Africa and we call it God forsaken. But is it really God forsaken or is it just church forsaken? We look at things that are happening and say, if God is a good God and he is all powerful, then how could he allow evil to exist? Isn't the better question, since you have been instructed by an all-powerful good God, why do you allow evil to exist? All that has to happen for evil to prevail is for good men to sit around and do nothing. 
What would happen if everybody who had been instructed by the word of God stood up and took the land that they were supposed to take? It's never God's will that evil happen. In fact, to prove that point, our second number that was here in verse 51, 601,730. This is less people. Do you know who these are? There's 1,820 fewer people in the second census. So imagine an entire nation full of strong men who were once slaves, have now seen the power of God, gotten to the edge of the promised land. No, we can't go in and take it or our children will become slaves and get devoured. So they all turn back. And God says, those that you said would be enslaved and devoured, even though there's 1,820 fewer of them, they will go in and take the land. This was to illustrate something about God's ultimate sovereignty. This is an important point for you to get. When God gives a word, the word is true. Even if the people he's giving it to are untrue. He will raise up someone in your place to do what you were supposed to do. God's word never fails, but his people often fail. To illustrate that, look at Deuteronomy 137. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either, but your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them And they will take possession of it. When God declares a thing needs to be done, will be done, you can know for certain that it's true. The question that remains is, will you be the one that does it? Or will he have to raise up somebody in your place? See, it may be God's will that preachers come from your family line. But you have the choice whether or not you will fulfill that role or whether it will fall to another. It may be God's will that prophetesses come from your family line. But it's up to you whether or not you fulfill God's word or he has to raise up another to do it. Joshua 5, 7 simply says, so he raised up their sons in their place. Do you want somebody to have to be raised up in your place? Or are you going to take your place in the kingdom of God? See, we're a church that is going on the offensive. We're not going to sit back and blame God for the delay in promises being fulfilled. Right. If there is a problem in, in a delay area, it's because we need to keep praying. It's because we need to keep fighting. God is ultimately sovereign. The only thing in question is whether or not you will walk in his sovereignty. And looking at this further, we have to declare that God is not the problem. Right? Say that with me. God God is is not not the problem. problem. Now say this part. Say, I am. I am. (laughs) So repentance precedes power of how we fulfill God's place for our lives and therefore the promises that are found in his word. Let's look at the extent to which God went to display his ultimate sovereignty in regarding a place and a promise. Go to Isaiah chapter 45 and we'll start with verse 1. Amen. Now, you guys remember back in the golden days of baseball, before there were millions and millions of dollars of contracts and 
everything else that goes along with uh, sports, that he had a guy called Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth would call his shots at times. I'm talking about a World Series game. It's, you know, bottom of the ninth, three, uh, three, three walks, two strikes, and this is the last at bat. And he points. He says exactly where he's going to hit it. This is a, a manner in which God is going to call his shot that far supersedes anything that Babe Ruth ever did. So let's start in verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. To who? Cyrus. Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor and to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Yeah. Wow. The time frame in which this is prophesied through Isaiah to the point of fulfillment where Cyrus walked the earth and did these exact same things is roughly over two centuries. So nearly over 200 years pass from the point that God says something to the point at which it's fulfilled. It's amazing. Come on, somebody say that's a long time. That's a long time. To put that in perspective for you, we're talking about George Washington's lifetime exactly. to today. If George Washington had prophesied that a president with orange skin and really funny hair was going to come to power, that... The news media would spend over a hundred days doing nothing but decrying his existence, then you might think that was impressive, right? Yeah, no. Isaiah does this two full centuries and names the man. Yeah, I don't think you're impressed enough yeah. with that. <laughs> How many of you are expecting children? Do you know what they're going to be called yet? Are you sure? What happens if it's a, you think it's a boy and it's born a girl? I mean, what? See, we're not sure what's going to happen in 10 years. God is certain what's going to happen in 400, and He can name a man 200 years ahead of time. It's incredible. Talk about being on the, on the front end of things, that God is able to forecast this, and then He's going to back Himself up with multiple witnesses. So let's look at how these witnesses play out as it gets closer to Cyrus's time. So I'm just going to reference these, write these down for your notes. Jeremiah 25 11 says, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Later in Jeremiah 29, 10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. You know, God establishes everything with two or more witnesses, including the very things that he promises and that he says. Well, now let's all go to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to see how all this begins to play out. Say there when you are there. It's the final. I was waiting for that. Yes. That would be our last song after service. It's the final countdown. I'm sitting by the keyboard. It's the thing. Do it. All right. Everybody repent. You all know it. Wash your minds of that because that will be in your head the whole service. So Daniel 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures. 
according to the word of the Lord given to who? Jeremiah. There's our witnesses. That the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, let's paint some things into perspective with this, right? So, first we have what God had already said through Isaiah, later witnessed by Jeremiah, and that there would be now an exact time frame that captivity would occur for Israel. Imagine if Daniel, now being in a successive line of receiving a word from the Lord for the nation of Israel about their return to Jerusalem, if he didn't do what he should have done, if he wasn't obedient. Come on, saints, you guys are Bible scholars in here. How many days did Daniel fast and pray? 21 days. What if he quit on day 19? He said, you know what? I think the Lord has just called me in a different direction. I don't think intercessory prayer is really my calling in this church. Uh, I'm going to go try prison ministry for a little while. He stood fast and his faithfulness to what God had already said and the purpose for which he called him brought him into the point of being honored and leaving a legacy that other men and women could follow. In fact, even bigger than that, it directed the nation of Israel. Now here you have a guy who's living in a foreign land as a captive. He's a eunuch and he's hearing from the Lord and no one is listening to him. Everywhere he goes, he's opposed by those that God put him in front of to speak his word to. And after fasting for 19 or 20 days, there's no answer. And then finally there is. You know, put yourself in that position. What has God put before you that you have not completed yet, but that you've given up on? What kind of legacy will that leave? But more importantly, in the now, today, what is the body of Christ missing that God is waiting for you to complete and therefore give everyone else? Let's take a, a look at this a little bit further. Let's go to Ezra chapter 1. As you're turning there, say this with me. Say, my obedience is required. My obedience is required. Amen. So before we reflect into Ezra 1, let me recap something real quick. Isaiah, the Lord speaks, says, I will summon you by name, Cyrus. We have Jeremiah saying that the nation of Babylon will be put into a desolate wasteland. Judgment is coming upon them. Again, he says the captivity will be 70 years. And then we begin to see its fulfillment getting ever closer here in Ezra's day. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm and to put it in writing. Now watch what Cyrus puts into writing as a king. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. Now pause there for a minute. We're now coming to the fulfillment of what was spoken nearly 200 years prior to this point. And that God is proclaiming through this non-Jewish, through a Gentile king, the fulfillment of his promises 
nearly 200 years prior to this. Verse 3. Anyone of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judea and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. This left a fulfillment, a completion of God's words because we know that his promises never fail and that he demonstrated his ultimate sovereignty in this matter by calling the shot nearly 200 years before the fact that it was fulfilled. So what's our legacy? Like Pastor Eric was mentioning earlier, can we wait five minutes for God's word to be fulfilled in our life? Right? I, I along with you, come down to this altar in worship. And I'm asking the, the Lord, Lord, I need wisdom. I need this. I need that. I need more of you. And my, my heart's honest answer is, I'm wanting you to give it to me right now. But what if it takes a little more perseverance? What if it takes a little more diligence and seeking after his face and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, trusting in his ultimate sovereignty that he's going to give me what I need and seek him after? What kind of legacy are we leaving, saints? And the, the, the point of today is giving you encouragement that your obedience will not let you fail because it is putting and demonstrating trust in God's ultimate sovereignty. I'm, I'm moved by the first phrase of this, of this scripture. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. This is from Cyrus, a king of a conquering nation, defeating the Babylonians, coming in and conquering God's people and saying, yeah, you guys can go up. As a matter of fact, whoever of you wants to, you, you want to go get some of it? Go ahead. If you, if you have the faith for it, why don't you go get it? That is one of my favorite things about the nature and the tenor of this church. Far too often we blame our complacency on God or where we are or the pastors don't see. Let me encourage you. If you have enough faith inside of you, get up and go get the things of the Lord. Make it your priority to go after it. Don't let your moniker be, don't let the title of your life be something that you just didn't go get what was available to you. Amen. When you consider what's happening here, in the year 700, Isaiah is faithful. And that provides the way for Jeremiah in the uh, late 500s, early 600s, to be faithful and to further his work. That makes a way for Daniel, who was just after Jeremiah, to be faithful and further his work. And this puts Ezra in the position of standing on the shoulders of men that have gone before him talking about the faithfulness of God. What are people going to say about your life the year after you're gone? What will your children say about you when you're gone? Will your grandchildren know that you left a righteous legacy? Will you be able to say that you did that? See, what you do or don't do is going to sum up your life. Have you ever read Chronicles? A king's entire reign was summarized in a single phrase. He either did or did not do what the Lord required of him. God's will is ultimately sovereign. It will be done on the earth. The kingdom of God is going to encompass the entire planet. Whether or not you're in that kingdom and a part of furthering it, his sovereignty in your life, that's entirely another question. That leads us to the book of Esther. Turn there with me. Esther chapter 4.
these are sobering thoughts to know that the God of all creation, in fact, is sovereign. That He will fulfill His plan. Are you, are you and I going to get to be a part of this plan? Are we going to get to see it fulfilled? Are, are we going to allow Him to use us to fulfill it? This is what Esther chapter 4 and verse 12 begins to teach us. Are you there? Yeah. There. It says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Wow. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. We usually get to the end part. We get to the for such a time as this part so quickly that we miss the fact that Mordecai is saying, uh, God will accomplish His will here. If you think you're going to hide from it and escape what's going on, in fact, that's going to be the very thing. Your silence will cause your death. You will not be a part of God's ultimate sovereignty. He will not use you if you back out, if you remain quiet. Isn't that amazing? He didn't even say if you do something evil. He said if you remain silent when you should speak. Wow. What about us, folks? How many times are we silent when we should speak? We have to be careful that we are not, by our own actions, keeping ourselves from the very sovereign will of God being accomplished. Us! Speaking of silent when you speak. Is there anybody in here who would like to testify? Is God good? Yes. yes. You don't want to be silent in the house of God, do you, huh? No. Is God good? Yes. You want to do His will? Yes. You going to do His will? Yes. Are we going to win? Yes. Amen. Alicia had the only hand up. That's right, girl. <laughs> and Alicia, it counts twice because it was that old-time Pentecostal. <laughs> if you can get a white handkerchief, bonus points. <laughs> Mordecai here has an understanding. I believe it's my personal opinion here that Mordecai was thinking back a thousand years to the Exodus. Yeah. We're a thousand years past the Exodus. I think that he was being reminded that his people were promised a certain land. But disobedience caused a 38-year delay in them achieving this land. It caused a different generation of people. 1,820 fewer people to go in. The children of the ones that were worried about it before. And yet God's will was accomplished. I believe that he was thinking back to what we've already shared today. And that's why he gave the clear, godly, powerful instructions that he gave to Esther here. So that in turn, that she could be reminded. In other words, hey Esther, do you want to be a part of God's plan or don't you? Do you want to be used to fulfill the sovereign plan of the Lord? Or are you going to let someone else take your place? In Ephesians chapter 1. We'll just put these on the screen really quickly. Verse 11. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him, listen to this phrase, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Amen. Man, next time you're worried about something, you just need to put this phrase up on your mirror somewhere. The plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. We'll put this on the screen as well. It says this, men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath 
confirms what is said and puts an end to the argument. Next verse. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear. Boy, it's one thing to have an unchanging nature about your purpose, isn't it? It's another thing for Him to declare it to us. It's another thing for Him to share that unchanging purpose, the one who will work out everything in accordance with the purpose of His will. And He wants to have it with us. He's letting us know about it. He's not just has this characteristic. He doesn't just have this characteristic and keep it to Himself. He's sharing it with us openly. Why? That we might be a participant, an active participant in His will for each and everything. Come on now. Anybody in here got some real problems? Get, get a hand up. You got some real problems. The rest of you are liars. Now you got a bigger problem. A pastor's <laughs> calling you a liar from the stage. If you have a real problem with me and you want to see me after the service, just see one of my sons instead, right? Listen. Think of these last two scriptures. He works out everything in conformity with his will. You know what that means? Come on, PJ. Girl, you can look at it and say, it's all right. He's going to work it out. It doesn't matter what is, is, is coming against you. He has an unchanging nature and a purpose. And he works out everything in conformity with his will. There are so many times in my household, you know, my family looks at me and goes, but why? I don't know. He's going to work it out. You know, you need to learn to just shake it off like that. I don't know. He's going to work it out. God is ultimately sovereign. In the intermediate, it, it can get ugly. It can get terrible. We can sometimes have months of difficulty. But that doesn't mean he's not going to work it out. Amen. See, we're trusting in the one who his nature doesn't change. His will doesn't change. He's able to take what was yucky and work it out. Amen. I love that about our God. He's going to work it out. We're not in the camp that denies it happens. We're not standing there saying, oh, no, just don't confess it. That, that's silly. That's like Christian witchcraft. You know what we need to do? You need to look it in the eye and say, Aha, I see what you're trying to do, devil, but God's going to work it out. Amen. And you just keep going. You just keep going. When things go wrong, you don't go with them. Psalm 33. Y'all there? Of course not. I just told you. Tell me when you're there. <laughs> there. You're going to work it out. So you know that God's never received an unemployment check, right? Romans 8, 28, for in all things, God works. That's right. He ain't home sleeping. <laughs> he ain't ducking your call. Mm. He didn't put you on that block list. <laughs> Not that I have any experience with those things. Jennifer does all of that. In Psalm 33, verse 4, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Amen. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. The story host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. And we're talking about an extraordinary God, aren't we? Yes. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. You know what that means? Heavenly powers 
rulers, authorities in high places are using the nations of the world like puppets against God and His plan. But God's plan stands firm. Come by. Say with me. God's plan. God's plan. Stands firm. Stands firm. Do you stand firm? See, if when it gets difficult, we find a new plan, that's not God's fault. It's ours. He'll still work it out. He'll work you right out of his kingdom and somebody more worthy in it. I want to be found worthy of the high call of God. Amen. You know what it's required? For you to stand with his plan in difficult places. That brings him glory. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Through how many generations? All. What's all mean? All. What's all mean? All. What's all mean? All. See, God didn't change his mind. He, he's not, despite what the dispensationalists say, he's not going, oh, they made a mistake. We need a new elliptical plan. Look, can we just back up and insert something here? That's not how God works. He has declared from the very beginning the way that this will turn out. Yeah. And he is drafting people according to his purpose. How many of you would like to be drafted? First round or 12th round? Come on, what you want? First round or 12th round? What you want? First round. First round. You know, I, one of the pastors in Chicago asked me about one of the brothers. I said, if you take him, I'll give you three first round picks. You know? God is drafting people according to his plan. The call of the gospel went out to you. You have answered it. Make good on it. You got to listen to your corner. You, you got to go after it and press your purpose. God's plan won't fail. It will end in success. Amen. My favorite part of this entire Psalm 33, and you know, I took gratuitous privilege in including it as we were putting this together because it's my favorite. It's when he says, No king is saved by the size of his army. This is uh, verse 16. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite its, all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope is in his unfailing love. See, it doesn't depend upon your list of talents. That's really good news. You know, I've never entered a talent show because I didn't have anything to put down on the paper. I wouldn't know what to do. I can't play the piano. I'm not pretty like Matthew. I wouldn't know what to do. But I do know a God who gives victory to those who are faithful. Amen. And it's great. I can be the ugly little brother who's just leaning on God's goodness. But if you don't let it, he awards you victory. You can trust in the ultimate sovereignty of God. What we've talked about Satan stopping Paul. We've talked about the armies of Israel giving up while fighting with Moab. We've talked about Daniel having to fight for 21 days and a messenger being delayed. We've talked about so many sobering things. You know what's true in every case? If you persist, you prevail. That's what's true. If you keep going, if you don't give up, heaven meets you right where you're at and gives you victory. I love that. Ephesians 6 so clearly tells us, it's 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. I've stood in Ephesus. It feels kind of strange. 
I've been in the temple of Artemis. I got to do really special things there, right? And I can tell you that the entire area feels spiritually charged. You feel like you're in the deep end of a swimming pool. You know what's very comforting when you're in that situation? You know what's very comforting when you're in that situation? You can call on a God whose name is El Elyon. He is the most high God. The first time he appears in scripture, he is the God that is above every other God. I don't have to be intimidated. I can call on El Elyon and whatever is in the spiritual pantheon, my God is stepping on its head. I don't have to shrink back because the God of all gods is with me, the most high God. I've heard him called most high God. Have you? Yes. What else have you heard him called? El Olam, everlasting God. He's also called El Barif, the God of the covenant. Come on, think about that. He is the God, he is a covenant-making God, one who will not fail us, one who we can be certain of what he says to us. Some people have called on his name and they said, Yahweh Saba, the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven, the Lord of hosts, the one who is the tip of the spear with all of the angels behind him. He's also Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is Shalom, y'all. He's peace. He is the one who destroys the authority attached to all chaos. Not only is he peace, but he's also the Lord of our righteousness. He is Yahweh Zedekah. He is righteous and just in all that he does. Amen? Amen. Elohim, lay Elohim. He is the God of gods. There is none that is like him, not one that compares to him. Of all the gods, he is their God. Amen. Come on, raise your hand if you're praying for healing. Amen. This is the name for you. He's Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Amen. What a powerful word. Love it. He's also what we used to grow up as El Shaddai. You're thinking of an Amy Grant song. Stop it. Just stop. I'm, I'm gonna singing pre- this song and I don't know why. <laughs> I'm going to try to pronounce a little bit more the way that they would do in Hebrew, which is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. You could talk about it as being God Almighty, but I like to think about it as the God who is enough. Yeah. He is El Shaddai. Amen. Whatever you lack, he's got it. Amen. Let's all go to Psalm chapter 97. Starting in verse 9, say, there when you are there. There. Come on, what's the title of today's message? That's right, ultimate sovereignty of God. Psalm 97, starting in verse 9. There. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above how many gods? All gods. How many, Rob? There we go. (laughs) Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. You know, God doesn't need to prove that he is faithful. He has already proven that he's faithful. Whenever we look at our lives in comparison to what God's word commands from it, We must see that our obedience brings us into that point of being delivered, of being healed, of being provided for, that his shalom fills every part of our lives. Reflecting back on Ephesians 6, you know that verse that we uh, we looked at 
So in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But God did not leave us to just fight on our own in our own strength. Instead, he, give us, he gives us his divine power that is able to destroy, to demolish the devil's works. And therefore, through us, he begins to demonstrate his ultimate sovereignty. Let's look at another way that this takes place in creation. Everybody go to Isaiah 45. Amen. Start in verse 5. Is everybody still awake? Yes. Yes. Have a few pockets and quadrants where it's a little bit idle. Is everybody still awake? Yes. Amen. <laughs> Isaiah 45, starting in verse 5. I am the Lord... There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Wow. Come on now. That's awesome. Let me read that again because yeah. that's just good. Just do it again. I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Come on, that's ultimate sovereignty. Amen. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You know, God has left his name and his, the signature of his ultimate sovereignty in creation so that all men, no matter of where they live, what culture or language they speak, they can see clearly the nature of who God is. Not only is God clearly and ultimately sovereign over all of creation, He's also clearly and ultimately sovereign over the nations. Let's look in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Over creation as well as over the nations. Let's look at verse 17. It says this. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know, listen to this, that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And gives them to anyone he wishes. And sets over them the lowliest of men. Isn't this exactly what he was declaring to Abram in Genesis 15? He was talking about nations. Multiple nations. This is what he was talking about in Isaiah. And in Daniel. About, uh, about Cyrus. This is exactly what we've been covering here. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of all men. I love the fact that he can set the lowliest of them. <laughs> He can set the lowliest of men over an entire nation just to show his own sovereignty in the matter. We've reached a place in our message when you probably are not doubting that the Lord is sovereign over creation. In fact, the sun comes up at the same time every day because he tells it to. He set boundaries for the ocean. He, there's nothing in all of the human existence that we encounter all of the creation of the world, rather, that has the audacity to tell God no except a man. You know, the planets are holding to their orbit with mathematical precision because it's what he said for them to do. And Job declares that. God is the God of creation. He's the God over the nations. And he's supposed to be the God over every individual. Can we all agree that not every individual on the planet is recognizing his sovereignty. Let's start with you then. How did Jesus teach us to pray? 
I'm reading this from Matthew, for those of us with a non-Catholic background. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You could say your sovereignty come. Same idea. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is Jesus really teaching us to pray? That God's sovereignty would be recognized in our lives. That he would reign in our lives. God's will is not at question whether or not you do his will. That is still very much in question. So in Matthew 6, 11, give us today our daily bread. As a part of God's sovereignty, he can feed you, of course. But why do you want him to feed you? So that you can do his will. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven debtors. If God is sovereign, you do not have the right to hold unforgiveness. If God is your God, then you do not have the right to hold unforgiveness or else He is not your God. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you, like me, were taught from some of the manuscripts that finished this differently, for yours is the kingdom the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Think about what we're saying in the ultimate sovereignty of God. We know how this ends. The only question is the indeterminate intermediate. Where you are living right now, the question is not how this will end, but how will you participate in it before it ends? You have from now till the end of your life. To live with God as your sovereign or to live as an outcast from the kingdom, rebellious in every way, no matter what your speech, dress, or inclinations are. You can love Christianity. You can think that it's the right way. You can dress well. You can aspire to be a better person. But if God does not have hour-by-hour control in your life, you are a damned rebel destined for hell. The ultimate sovereignty of God is that he will sort this out. And in the end, his plan will come together as perfectly as he announced it at the end when he announced it at the beginning. But there is a great variable in the plan. And that really is what you do next. That part... He has not determined. He does not force you to follow Him. He does not force you to obey Him. He wanted you to choose Him. And if you choose Him, His will will live inside of you. His will will be done through your hands. And His kingdom will be established as the result of your work. But that choice is up to you. Could you stand to your feet?